0: If you're able, please remain standing. and We'll turn to John chapter 6 this morning. John 6, beginning at verse 41. Our text will be verses 41 through 59. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is this, or rather, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life, and I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that the one or that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews, therefore, quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, indeed, now you who are the author and giver of life, we ask that by your spirit, you would feed us spiritually, help us to feed in that way on the Lord Jesus. And may your word not return unto you void. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. Remember John's great purpose for writing this gospel. It's found at the end. In John chapter 20 and verse 31, it says there that these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so in that sense, for that reason, this is a great gospel to share with unbelievers. All of the gospels are great to share with unbelievers, but you can see its purpose, its primary purpose humanly speaking and divinely speaking as to why it's been given to us. But the gospel is not only for unbelievers. It is for Christians, too. In Colossians 3, verse 16, the Apostle Paul, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We are to have a constant diet of the word of God. And there Paul calls that word, the word of Christ. It is from Christ. It is about Christ. And so we are to have a constant diet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in order for us to profit from the gospel of John, we must understand that one of the many applications of this gospel. In fact, one of the many applications of God's word is faith. It is trust. It is belief in the promises of God and the word of God himself. And this is where saving relationship with Jesus begins. It is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Christian life, too, is centered around, upon the Lord Jesus himself. And so as we think about that, I'll just share with you my desire, my prayer is that all of us who are Christians and disciples of the Lord Jesus, as we go through John's gospel, once again, that we will fall in love, if you will, with the Lord Jesus again and again and again. In John chapter six, we've seen Jesus feed the 5,000, which would have been probably 15 to 20,000. And of course the people, they, they wanted the bread. They wanted physical food. They wanted to make Jesus king. So they followed Jesus and his disciples. Uh, his disciples, of course, make their way miraculously led by Jesus all the way back to the shore. And then they end up in This synagogue, as verse 59 tells us, near Capernaum or in Capernaum. And uh, Jesus there gives his fourth discourse in the Gospel of John. And in this discourse, he moves from the physical manna or the bread rather that he gave to them, the miraculous bread. He moves from that to himself, pointing to himself, saying that he is the bread of life that has come down from heaven. And as we saw last time, That bread of life, the Lord Jesus, as the bread of life, is the one who brings eternal sustenance, eternal satisfaction and eternal salvation. What a glorious truth that is for us who believe in him. But now, as we come near the end, we're not quite there yet. We we hear of what the disciples themselves call a hard saying of Jesus. And that's found there in verse 60, not in our text, but the disciples, many of them say, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? And it's a hard saying. No doubt what Jesus says here in this passage. In fact, he talks about eating his own flesh, drinking his own blood. So what does that mean? And I think that um, for other reasons, we'll see that this discourse includes other things that are hard sayings of Jesus as well. So our purpose this morning is to examine. It is to understand and to believe these hard sayings of our Lord. And as we do that, to rejoice, to give thanksgiving to the living God. For the son of God who has come down from heaven. So as we understand and believe what is said here, it is to bring thanksgiving to the living God as a result. And I trust that that will be uh, the response in your heart as well this morning. So first of all, as we think about these hard sayings of our Lord Jesus Christ, we see here this first hard saying concerning the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we talk about the incarnation, the word itself means in flesh. To come in the flesh. Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, who is very God and very God, as we confess, eternally not made. Eternal and not made. He is the one who has come down from heaven and taken upon human flesh, a nature like yours and a nature like mine. That is the incarnation. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He did not come by way of ordinary generation, as we sometimes say. And so Jesus has taught this again and again. He is the bread who comes down from heaven. And so we find these Jews here hearing him say this. And what is their reaction in verses 41 and 42? John tells us they complain about and because he said they don't like this sermon they're complaining, they're murmuring, because he said, verse 41, I am the bread of, well, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Then in verse 42, they ask this question: Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? I mean, we know this guy, we've known him for 30 years, whatever, somewhere around that time. We've walked with him. Some of us have worked with him. You know that house down there? He he made that house. How can you say he came down from heaven? How can he say this? Let me just underscore that just as the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ was an integral part of the gospel 2,000 years ago, it remains such today. It is Necessary, an integral part of the good news of Jesus Christ. If you look in the text there, in verse 29, actually, it says that he was sent by the Father. In verse 32, it says that he is the true bread from where? From heaven. In verses 33 and 38, he is the one who comes down from heaven. And of course, John, the gospel writer, began his prologue to his gospel. By saying in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. And in verse 14, he said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so it begins by stating the incarnation. What was their error then? These Jews who heard this discourse of our Lord. Well, their great error concerning this topic was that they thought merely that Jesus was human, that he was only human, that he was just one of them. You know, is he not Joseph's son? That was what they said. In fact, elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, this wasn't the the only time they'd said something like this. In Matthew 13 and verse 54, it says, when the disciples, or rather when Jesus, had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue." So that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon and Judas or Jude? Not to be confused with Judas Iscariot. And so there they repeat the same thing. And by the way, his his works, his miracles, they're undeniable. As we see there in Matthew 13, his teaching obviously was with authority. And uh, at the same time, they reject the claims of Jesus. They reject what he is telling them. Well, even in the rest of Scripture, the Bible clearly, plainly says that Jesus took upon human flesh. For instance, Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law. There's that great incarnation passage, Philippians two, where the apostle Paul says in verse five, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond and coming in the likeness Amen. So Jesus was in the very form of God. And what that means is he was God. He continued to be God. Always was, always will be. But he took the form of a bondservant, human flesh. And he did that in his humility as part of, we say, his humiliation. And so, again, this is a great doctrine, an article of our faith. It is an article of the Christian faith. And the struggle of these Jews has been the struggle of many through the ages. I mean, even if you go back to Joseph, the husband of Mary, he was engaged. We call it that today to Mary. And he finds out that Mary was with child and he had determined to put her away, to give her a certificate of divorce, to end the engagement. And uh, so then an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and has to tell Joseph that this one is of the Holy Spirit. We see it with these Jews here. They struggle with the incarnation after them uh, in the early church. This, too, was something that was debated. Um, they went the other way. Some of those who would say they were Christians, uh, they would say, well, um, Jesus was divine. They didn't struggle so much with his, his deity But they thought since matter, or they said that matter is evil, they would say, well, it was impossible for Jesus to take upon a human body. And so Jesus appeared to be like a man, but didn't have a physical body. He was deity, no doubt. That's called docetism. If you've heard of Gnosticism, it would become that later on. Uh, But for the first 300 years of the post-apostolic, early Christian church This was an issue, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. How could these two natures, the human nature and the divine nature, come together in one person? And they debated this and discussed this. And so finally, in A.D. 325, you have the Council of Nicaea condemning that heresy called Arianism, which said that there was a time when Jesus was not and then later you had the Council of Chalcedon in A.D. 451 uh, condemning the, the other heresies concerning the incarnation. And so Jesus is professed then to be very God, a very God. You know, if you want to know what the cults believe, if you want to know if a group is a quote cult, just go to Jesus. See what they say about the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, the Jehovah's Witness, they say that he is a God, one of many gods who's created. The Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, they teach that Jesus was a preexistent spirit, that he's the firstborn of God's spirit children. Uh, the liberals of the early 20th century, they denied the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had a problem with the incarnation. And today there are people who say, I just can't believe that. Well, I just remind you, this is a necessary part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus. And maybe you're asking the question well, why the incarnation? Why is it so important? Why are you making such a big deal of this? Why does Jesus make this part of his message, the gospel? Well, that's a good question. And I hope to come back to that at the end. But for now, let me just say Jesus is revealing this and therefore it is important. This is a divine revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have this first hard saying, uh, the teaching that God has come in the flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ is the bread of life who has come down from heaven. We have here another hard saying of our Lord Here, And that concerns what he says about human nature. So we have another hard saying, and it is concerning human nature. So we get it. We see that these Jewish men had an issue with what Jesus was saying, what he was teaching. Now we know why, because of what Jesus says following verse 42. If you see there in verse 43... Jesus, therefore, answered and said to them, this is why he is saying this, because of what they've already said. Jesus, therefore, answered and said to them, do not murmur. Stop it. Stop murmuring and complaining and grumbling among yourselves. And then he says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. This is one of those hard things of Jesus too. Notice what Jesus says here. He says, no one. This is a universal negative claim. There are no exceptions. This applies to all men. No one. Whether it's the Pharisee or the publican, an educated or uneducated person, rich, poor, Republican, Democrat, Independent, I don't care person, whomever, a churchgoer, a non churchgoer, no one, he says, can. He uses these words very carefully and purposefully. No one can. Remember in school you had to learn the difference between may I and can I? And parents, some of you just, you know, maybe because you're a parent like me, you like to point that out to your children. Your, your son, your daughter says, Mom, Dad, can I? And you say what? I don't know. Can you? <laughs> they get it. Of course I can. But the question is, may I? Do I have the permission to go do this or do that? There's a, a, a great difference between may I and can I? May I deals with permission Can I deals with ability? Do I have the ability and the the, the power to do this, to accomplish something? And Jesus here says, no man can come unto me. He does not have the ability to come unto me. And when he says come unto me, what does he mean? If you look back at verse thirty five. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. Verse 36, you do not believe in me. Verse 37, all that the father gives me will come to me. So to come to Jesus is to believe in Jesus. It is to hear what he says, to have faith and trust in him who is the gospel himself. And so you can't come to Jesus Christ. No man has the ability to come savingly to Jesus Christ. And then note the word in verse 44, unless. So Jesus is not saying this will never happen. He's saying this will never happen unless a certain condition is met. Unless one thing must happen. And what is that? Again, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, he's the bread of heaven, unless the Father sent me draws him. So in order for a person to come to Jesus Christ, in order for a person to eat of the bread of life himself, in order for a person to have faith in Jesus, he must be first Drawn to Jesus. And this word drawn is not a mere wooing or a mere influence. It's elsewhere translated drag. In Acts chapter 21 and verse 30, Paul was dragged out of the city by the mob. Of course, Peter in John eighteen ten had his sword and he drew his sword. Now, when Jesus talks about this drawing of a person by the Father, a a person whom the Father draws to the Lord Jesus, it's not talking about something violent. He's talking about drawing. And so then Christ's teaching here is that as humans, we are all so corrupt and unable That we cannot come to Jesus on our own. Sometimes we refer to this as total depravity. Or we say that mankind, except for the Lord Jesus, is thoroughly depraved. We do not teach or believe, the Bible does not teach, that all men are as bad as they can be. Not all men are axe murderers or hitlers, if you want to use that Overused analogy. But we are all thoroughly depraved. We are all affected by sin in every extent of our being as humans. Fallen since Adam and Eve fell in the garden. And we fell, of course, with Adam. And so we sometimes refer to this as total inability. Total inability. I mean, just listen to some of the scriptures, what they say about this. In Romans chapter three, uh, beginning verse nine, it says, what then are we Jewish people? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. None who seek after God. They've all turned aside. They've all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Jeremiah thirteen twenty three puts it like this. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? The answer to that question is, of course not. It goes on. Then may you also do good who are accustomed to doing evil as humans who are born in sin, who do only evil continually, as Genesis six, five says, we do not have the ability to change our nature and become good. In John eight, 34, a few chapters after this one uh, in verse 34, also verse 44, Jesus will say that mankind is enslaved to sin. That mankind is enslaved to the devil himself. We, when we come into this world, are in bondage to sin and we wear Satan's shackles. We do his, his will, his bidding. In case you're having a hard time with this, turn with me to Ephesians chapter two. This is, sort of, this is a go-to text for what I'm saying. Ephesians chapter two. Paul speaking to Christians at Ephesus 2000 years ago in verse one, he says, and you, you all you who are part of the church at Ephesus, you've you've come to Jesus, you put your faith in him. He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. God has made you alive. You are born again, regenerated. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse two, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of Of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his Grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus and note verse eight for by grace, the gift of God, that is by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We followed the prince of the power of the air, the devil. And we were unable to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, But God who is rich in mercy has come to us who are Christians and believers in Jesus. He's made us alive together with the other saints. He's regenerated, regenerated us by the power of the Holy Spirit. The result is that we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, by the way, even the faith needed to believe in Jesus is the gift of God. Now, when he gives it to you, it becomes your faith. You exercise that faith. And what is the result? No boasting, as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tell us. So this is the teaching of Scripture. This is what we call effectual calling in Christian doctrine and teaching and theology. It's effectual. It has power. It accomplishes the intended result that God has put to it. He calls us out of the world. He does this by the preaching of the gospel, the gospel itself, by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the internal call. You can read later Matthew 22 and verse 14, where Jesus summarizes the kingdom and how the preaching goes out. He says, many are called, but few are chosen. So there's the external call of the gospel. There are a few who are chosen, those who believe in the gospel. That is the result. They're believing is the result of being chosen before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. And so in space and time, in his own timing, God calls those he's chosen to Jesus Christ. He calls them effectually by the power of his word and spirit. Let me read to you Romans 8, which summarizes what I've just stated. In Romans chapter 8, there's that what is called the golden chain of salvation. Paul deals with this in great detail in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 9. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called or be called according to his purpose. For, this is how Paul knows this, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So there you have it. That old hymn, it, it says this. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And so that's what Jesus teaches here in John 6. If you look at the end of verse 44, he says, I'll raise him up at the last day. Again, he refers to the resurrection This is part of the gospel as well. That's therefore our encouragement. That's another article that we believe by faith. Then in verse 45, Jesus sums it up. He he says, in essence, that um, this is nothing new. In fact, it was written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Probably he's referring to Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 13. when, When it says here, they all shall be taught by God. Uh, When it says all, he's referring to those whom the Father has chosen. And then it says they will be taught by God. If you look, it says, in the middle of verse 45, these are Jesus' words. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So hearing in this context and learning in this context means it refers to that general call or rather that um, efficacious or effectual call that Jesus has already taught in verse 44 and so to hear to learn is to hear and learn the gospel and to be drawn by the Holy Spirit I think that's what Jesus is teaching here the Father sends the Spirit and of course Jesus himself sends the Spirit we find these both taught in the New Testament Luke 24 49, for, for instance. And so, as we see what Jesus says here, this hard saying about human nature, our inability to come to Jesus Christ, and the fact that we must be drawn by God the Father to come to Jesus, we must be given new life by the Spirit. When we think about that, two things flow from that. Number one is we're not merely sick. It's not a lifeline that we need. We need to be raised from the dead spiritually before we believe in Jesus. Another thing that flows from that is humility. Of all people, Christians should be marked by humility. We know it we deserve. We deserve God's curse. His wrath, condemnation, hell forever, and left unto our own powers, our own wills, our own desires. That's what we would have gotten, but no, no. But God, in the Gospel of His Son, Ephesians two five, He's come to us by the preaching of the gospel, by the power of the Spirit. He's come into our tombs and raised us like Lazarus, and He says, "Come forth," and so we come out. Because of the power of God. As Chris Austin, an old church father said, pride is the mother of hell. Are we prideful? Are you prideful, Christian? Do you look down upon those who are less educated than you? Do you look down upon those who are less successful than you? Do you think of yourself as more spiritual than others? Are you quick to find fault with others? Do you think that your way is the only and best way? Are you deficient in prayer? Do you forget to pray before you accomplish some great task or enter into a difficult situation? Here's a cure for pride. The Apostle Paul puts it like this to the Corinthians What do you have that you have not received? The whole package of salvation is God's gift. To us. And one more thing that flows from this teaching ought to be praise and thanksgiving on the part of the Christian. Right? If you've already believed this, if you've already seen this by God's grace and, and received it, surely you were led to thanksgiving to praise unto God. Why? Because I was doomed. I was damned. I was dead. But God. That phrase, that happened to me personally. It happened to you personally. And you see that God is merciful. He's all-powerful. He has saved me. And He's broken my chains. And like Paul, who was blind, something like scales in Acts chapter 9 fell from his eyes. And so Paul, after discussing this great doctrine we're talking about in the doctrine of election and predestination too, and In Romans chapter 11, verse 35, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And then he ends that section in verse 36 of Romans 11. And he says, For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Do you need a reason to praise and worship God every day and every Lord's day after Lord's day? Not only his creation, but also the redemption that he's given to us through Jesus Christ. And so for the Christian, even though this is a hard saying, what he says here about human nature, it is something affirmed by the Christian. It is an item for which we give thanks to the Lord and praise to him. Well, there's one last saying here that is a hard saying of our Lord that's found in verses 47 through the end of our text, verse 58. And this concerns the flesh and blood of Jesus eating his flesh and his blood. Jesus presses them again. He is the true bread from heaven. He digs in rightfully so because he's speaking gospel divine truth to them. He said that he is the bread of life. He's contrasted himself with the manna of the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 16. That the manna was the type it pointed to something else. Jesus is the antitype. He is that which fulfills the type of the manna. He is the true bread come down from heaven. The old bread, it was a mystery. They called it, what is it? It was bread, but they named it, what is it? It was something of a mystery. It was from heaven and it gave life. Our Lord Jesus and his incarnation, how he comes down, that's something of a mystery to us. Jesus comes down from heaven and he gives us life. Not like that in the manna, he says, which, you know, their fathers were dead. They ate of it and were died. But if you eat of them, the bread I have, you'll have eternal life. Then he says something in our text, which would be shocking to them. In verse 51, he says, I am the living bread, which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. He is telling them to eat his flesh. His bread is his flesh. And he speaks of blood, drinking his blood. And this was against what the Old Testament had said in Genesis 9, 4. They were told... You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Leviticus 3, 7, you shall eat neither fat nor blood. And so what do they do? Verse 52. They quarrel again, violently so, among themselves, and Jesus, and they say, How can this man give us his flesh to Eat. That's a good question. If you don't understand what Jesus is saying, is Jesus talking about cannibalism? Of course not. Maybe he's talking about communion. Maybe he's talking about the Lord's Supper. Or maybe he's talking about something else. Well, he's not talking about cannibalism. I don't have to defend that. I don't think just read your Bibles. You shall not kill. You shall not murder. Um, We're made in God's image and so forth. It's not talking about that. There's some in the history of the church who said, well, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. I disagree with that. If you were to read on in chapter six and verse 63, Jesus says he was speaking words of spirit, words of a spiritual nature given by the spirit. These are figurative, figurative words. And also, if it were true that Jesus here is referring to the Lord's Supper, well, um, he says here. That this eating and this drinking is essential to eternal life. And so what about those who came before Jesus? All those saints of old. What about the thief on the cross? He didn't eat Jesus' flesh. He didn't drink Jesus' blood. Then all those people are dead and in hell. Can't be that. And in the Greek text, it says in verse 50, as well as verse 51, also verse 52 that this eating is a one-time action. One-time action. And yet, as we read in 1 Corinthians 11, Matthew 22, Jesus says, Do this in remembrance of me. As often as you eat of it, come together. It's to be done frequently. So it can't be the Lord's Supper. And by the way, the word flesh is not used in the other text of Scripture when it comes to the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 11, so forth. The word there is body. And if this were literal. Then guess what? That old heresy transubstantiation. Would be necessary. That the body. Or rather that the bread and the wine. Transform into the. Physical body. And blood of the Lord Jesus. Well that's Roman Catholicism. That's gross error. It's idolatry in some respects. What does he mean? It means that by faith, spiritually, we partake of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we appropriate, that we reach out and grab the Lord Jesus by faith. We believe in Him. We eat of this bread of life and He becomes our Life itself, our sustenance, as I've said, our satisfaction, our salvation. You see in Leviticus and in those Old Testament passages, which say you're not to eat of something that has the life in it, that is its blood. It's because those sacrifices and so forth pointed forward to someone who would one day come, who would be the substance of those types, who would be the antitype. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so by faith, we eat his flesh by faith. We drink his blood when we trust in Jesus and accept what he has done at Calvary in our place. His flesh and his blood point to his body, his human suffering at Calvary. And so then earlier I did ask that question. Why is the incarnation so important? Why is it integral, integral to the gospel? Well, centuries ago, um, church father, you might want to call him, maybe not, Christian, um, he wrote this. He, he wrote a work called On the Incarnation, St. Anselm. It's a pretty famous work. And uh, he asked the question in his book On the Incarnation. Of what use is the existence to the creature if it cannot know its maker? Of what use is existence to the creature if it cannot know its maker? Of what use is your existence if you cannot know your maker? I mean, we know our maker in the Romans one sense through the creation that he's there, that he's powerful, that he's all wise and all of this. But we don't know him intimately. We don't know him savingly. We don't have communion with the living God. Do you see? This is why the true bread has come down from heaven. That our relationship with the living and true God may be forever and finally and eternally be restored. That we may have communion with this living God through the Father's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That we may have have life and have life abundantly. And so in the incarnation, very God of very God took upon human flesh And the divine nature joined the human nature inseparably forever. By the way, what an act of condescension for our salvation. But why has He done that? Why was the incarnation necessary? It was so that Jesus might as human die in our place as the sinless, perfect sacrifice to give His flesh and His blood in place of our flesh and our blood, that He might become a curse so that we might become a blessing and be blessed by God. He was forsaken by the Father so that we might be accepted in the Beloved. That's why the Incarnation is necessary. So do you see that this morning? Do you see why Jesus came down? And Christian, do you see that were it not for the sovereign grace of God, you would never have come to Jesus Christ? And what impact does that have upon you this morning? Is it one of humility and praise and thanksgiving? And to the unbeliever, we say, well, you can come to Jesus Christ if you are willing and if you are willing, you are willing because of what Philippians 2.13 says, because of what Jesus says. In Philippians 2.13, it says that for Christians, God is at work in you both to will and do His good pleasure. And so this morning, by faith, spiritually, let us taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending the bread of life who has come down from heaven. Help us to feed on him. And as we see what he teaches here, to feed on his doctrine. And may that have its intended result in our lives. Your glorification. May we give thanksgiving to you. May we be a humble people. May we worship and praise you forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.